We are continuing our study of the book of Matthew today, and we are going to cover Matthew chapter 3. And the title of the sermon is, Repent! And in order to repent, you have to wake up, right? Now, I was able to find a couple of interesting articles this week on repentance. One of them was titled, Three Reasons Why I Don't Preach on Repentance. I had fun reading that one. Uh, the author narrowly defined repentance in the first place as simply just changing your mind and not actually turning from sins, which was I think, problematic from the beginning. But his three reasons that he gave were, number one, it puts people under law. So he argued that preaching repentance is actually uh, actually leaves sinners worse off than they were before because it enslaves them to works. And so in his mind, preaching repentance is to preach a works-based salvation. And uh, second, he said, it doesn't lead people to salvation. So the second point was basically, it's, it doesn't work. It doesn't lead people to be saved, which obviously doesn't include repenting. <clears throat> and he tried to argue that Jesus and Paul, what they went around preaching was the good news, not repentance. And and that tied into his third reason, which was that we are called just to preach the gospel, not repentance. So preach Christ crucified. And another article I found was similar, and in it the author said this, Nowhere in the Bible is one's eternal destiny contingent upon his repenting of his sins. So he said, like the other guy, that teaching repentance actually hinders people from being born again. And at the end of his article, he said this, We do not need to preach repentance in order to evangelize people clearly. In fact, if we tell people they must repent in order to be born again, then we have preached a false gospel. We have confused them. Hmm. You know, that is awfully strange. Because I could have swore that Jesus said, what was it? I'm going to try to remember. Wait a second. I think I think I wrote it down here. <clears throat> now I don't have control. <clears throat> All right. Matthew 4:17 From that time Jesus began to preach saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Hmm. I guess that's all there was about repentance though from Jesus and the disciples and all that. Oh, wait a second. No, there was Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, there was Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. In Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Oh, wait, there was that time that Jesus sent the disciples out, two by two. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And then Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then again in Luke 13.3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And let's not get started on the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. I mean, I know those didn't have anything about repentance in them. 
But I, I guess this is all, it's not very convincing, is it? I mean, those guys must be right. You know, we're not, we're not called to preach repentance, just the gospel. Which doesn't include that. Yeah, they're probably right. Oh, wait a second. But there is Luke 24, 46 and 47. And Christ said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So what do you think? Should I preach on repentance? Does that mean that I'm preaching that you're saved by works and not by grace? No. Are we, does that leave people worse off than before? Well, if it does, then Jesus and the disciples were really terrible at their job. Are we called to preach a gospel without repentance? Well, maybe we can learn even more from Matthew 3 today, where we are introduced to a guy named John the Baptist. You know, Jesus had some really high remarks for John the Baptist. And his message, I believe, will help us understand what our message should be. So, God, we ask that you would grant us wisdom. Help us to understand this. Help us to understand what to do with it. And that we would leave here better equipped to go and take the right message to the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. When we left off at chapter 2, Jesus was still a child, right? So as we begin chapter 3, and, and it starts with, in those days, we might think, oh, Jesus is still a child, in the context of this chapter, but that's not really the case. Now, of course, John the Baptist was preparing the way for, for a while, you know, so in those days kind of encompasses, well, just that whole time period. But in the context of the chapter and later when we see Jesus come to get baptized, he wouldn't be a child anymore. He was around 30 years old. And this is the chapter that marks the beginning of his public ministry. Now, John's message, the central theme of his message, just like Jesus's, is repentance, which will be the focus of all the application later in the sermon. Uh, but I'm going to circle back to that, similar to what I did last week. But the context of John the Baptist, understanding this guy, requires us to go back to the end of the Old Testament. And the last chapter of the Old Testament is only six verses long. So I want to read that whole chapter, which is in Malachi chapter 4. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. 
Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So then what happened, as we talked about last week, proceeded, or a couple weeks ago, 400 years of silence from the Lord. And then this guy, John the Baptist, shows up. And Jesus speaks about John the Baptist later in Matthew 11, verses 7 through 15. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So John is the first prophet in 400 years. He's not literally Elijah reincarnated, but he's a new Elijah. And there are connections that the Bible gives us between these two guys. The Old Testament also says that Elijah wore uh, a uh, garment of hair and a leather belt, and they were both men of the wilderness. And then here John comes, and he's preaching, and as Jesus says here, what did they come out to see? A, a guy in King's Palace? No. This, this guy out in the wilderness, not fancy at all. And, and his lifestyle is important to the sincerity of his ministry. And I want to talk about that. Because if you look at Old Testament prophets, they were a weird, wild bunch. All right, they just were. They did all kinds of crazy stuff. They went through all kinds of crazy stuff. But what you never see happening with those prophets is lavish lifestyles. Like John is, is right in line with the Old Testament prophets and the way that they lived. And that speaks to the sincerity and integrity of his ministry. He wasn't benefiting from these people. And he wasn't preaching in a way that, you know, appealed to their sinful nature. Now, fast forward for, to today, and a lot of the most popular teachers and preachers, you know, are walking around in uh, designer suits and watches, driving around in luxury sports cars and flying around in private jets, or, of course, in first class if they don't have enough faith to get a private jet. But... Uh, when your pastor or teacher is living a lavish lifestyle, it is a big signal that their ministry is not sincere. All right? 
And the only way to lead like that in a ministry is to preach in a way that appeals to people's sinful natures. You have to think about this. Because what those kinds of leaders are teaching their people is that God wants them to be financially successful, to, you know, to be wealthy, to be healthy, and all of those things. And so that's a sign of faith to them and faithfulness. So what do they do? Well, they lead by example, of course, as any good leader would. Therefore, and that's appealing. I mean, is that not that that appeals to me in certain ways. Now, what it appeals to is my greed, my selfishness, my sinful nature. Now, what's not appealing is a message of repentance preached by a weirdo living out in the wilderness wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and honey. That is not appealing to my sinful nature. The the only reason that that would be appealing is if I'm truly, genuinely seeking the truth and seeking the Lord. And we have a problem if I, as a leader, am teaching sacrifice, but I'm not sacrificing. If I'm teaching, preaching, give generously, but I don't give generously. If I'm saying repent, but I'm not repenting, that would be a huge problem. And I hope that my life can speak to the sincerity of my ministry. And if you are skeptical about that, or maybe you're not even skeptical, but you're just wondering, then we can talk about it. It's not a secret. Like, we can talk about what all of those things look like in my life. It's not things that I'm going to go around publicizing, but if you want to sit down, I don't care about sharing what we give. I don't care about talking about my flaws and the ways that I have to repent. I'm open to that. Now, another interesting part about this is that people were coming to be baptized by John. And Jews at this time, they weren't completely unfamiliar with the concept of baptism. Baptism was a thing back then, but it wasn't a thing for them. It was something that Gentile adults who would come from a pagan background would do if they wanted to be assimilated into Judaism, you know, convert to Judaism. So this is a weird situation because these are Jewish people coming out to be baptized by John. And we're going to talk about that more momentarily. But before we get there, we'll work through verses 7 through 10. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So we don't know exactly why these Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to John. Maybe they were coming to get baptized, or maybe they were just coming to see what was going on. And if they were just coming to see what was going on, John made a big point that they do not miss the message. I mean, he he unleashed on them. And if they were coming to get baptized, then either way, they had impure motives. If they were coming to get baptized, then most likely it was just to check off some more religious boxes, which would have fit their M.O., But what John says to them points back to some things that I've taught recently in the seven churches of Revelation about how being ethnically Jewish is not what 
saves someone. But these guys thought it did. They thought Abraham's righteousness was all they needed and that that would be credited to them. But John made it abundantly clear, hey, it's not Abraham's blood that saves. And he basically tells them that rocks have just as much chance of getting into heaven as they do, which is kind of the equivalent of when Jesus told the rich, said it's easier for a rich person or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to go to heaven. You know, this is kind of like the equivalent of that, except it's for the Jewish religious leaders. All things are possible with God, but <laughs> the odds of them repenting were pretty slim. <clears throat> but we'll continue in verses 11 and 12. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. See, John is not saying that the baptism that he's providing is saving people. We know that from all of Scripture's teaching about baptism and salvation itself. And also the language here is uh, difficult for translators. It's kind of like John is saying he's baptizing in view of repentance. The people are coming, they're confessing their sins, they're showing themselves to be repentant, and he's baptizing them. And this is similar to the Christian baptism we practice today, but it's a little different. Obviously, when we get baptized, we have in view Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and that hadn't happened yet for them. But they were still coming in view of repentance and with in mind the coming Messiah. And so what was really happening here is these Jewish people were acknowledging that their Jewishness wasn't enough. That circumcision and being Jewish wasn't all they needed. They actually needed to confess their sins and repent. And this baptism was identifying them with the need for repentance. Now, speaking of circumcision, some people look at baptism as just a continuation of circumcision. And so that's why they would baptize babies sometimes, for instance. But that's not what this is. See, baptism is not a continuation of circumcision. This is something New Circumcision was an outward sign, yes, but of an ethnic identity. And baptism has nothing to do with ethnicity. It's an outward sign. It's not about being Jewish, born Jewish, or born in a Christian family, or a Catholic family. It's about repentance and faith. And these Jews were showing their faith through John's baptism, as Christians have continued to do through Christ's baptism ever since. Baptism is a huge thing. It's, it's, no, it's not a small thing in Scripture. We have no examples other than the thief on the cross of anyone in the New Testament, a believer, not being baptized. It was part of Jesus' final command. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it's a big deal. But what baptism is, it's a new sign of a new covenant with a new people. And there's other stuff in these verses here that I am going to come back to. But before that, we'll continue on through verse 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me? Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We don't know at the beginning of this how much John understood about Jesus. You know, he tried to stop him from being baptized. But was that because he fully understood that he was the Messiah, that that he was preparing the way for? Or did he just know Jesus and he's like, dude, you're a better guy than I am. Like, You need to be baptizing me. Well, I don't know for sure. We know that John, even after this, had some interesting comments about, (laughs) about Christ. But he was about to find out. He did find out, as we saw. And we have this question, though, of why did Jesus need to be baptized? You know, everybody else was coming in view of their repentance. He didn't have anything to repent from. So why be baptized? Well, he said, allow it to fulfill all righteousness. Okay. Thanks, Jesus. That's really specific. Um, he, he told us what we needed to know, but fulfilling all righteousness doesn't tell us very much about the details. So we can think through it a little bit. Um, for one thing, this is something that he was supposed to do. This was the Father's will for him. And so, of course, he had to do that. And he would do it because he would not sin. He would not disobey the Father's will. But there's more than that. You see, one of the things that Jesus accomplished by becoming man is that he identified with us. He shared with us. When God became man, but he, he didn't share in our sins, but he shared in humanity. He shared in our suffering. He shared in living in this sinful world. He shared in our temptations. And here we see him sharing with our baptism, identifying with us and setting an example for us to follow. But there's more to it, I think, than that, because our baptism is a public declaration of our faith in Christ and his ability to cleanse us from our sins. So it's us telling the world, like, I'm here and I identify with Jesus now. Now, his baptism was also a public declaration, not of his salvation. He didn't need to be saved. But this marked the beginning of his public ministry. And so we see the triune God, all three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, coming together at the same time, marking this occasion and, and God spoke and revealed Jesus as his son. The Messiah now verified that they had been waiting for. John had been preparing the way for this Jesus. The king has arrived. Of course, we know he arrived already. The Magi came to worship when the king arrived. But now it's like the time is here. Things are changing. The king is beginning his work. And that really transitions us perfectly into my points of application today, which all have to do with repentance. There's four of them. Two, the first two have to do with why we should repent, and the second two have to do with what repentance produces in us, for us. We repent because of something, and we also repent for something. And at the beginning of this chapter, we saw the first reason to repent, and that was because the king is here. The king is here. Now, I know, I know. John said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
But let's understand that that was before what happened later in the chapter. And we are no longer living in the time of John the Baptist preparing the way. We are living after Christ has already died and been resurrected. So the king is here. And that's why Jesus would say later in Matthew 12, 28, but if I cast out the demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Also in Luke 17, 20 and 21, now he was questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. And he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The king is here. The kingdom is here in one way. And even when John was saying those things, the kingdom is near. He wasn't, he didn't have in mind something far off. Luke's translate, the way Luke puts it is the kingdom is at hand. He's saying like the time is now, the transition is happening. And I'm not going to get into a long drawn out study on the kingdom. I don't think we need to overcomplicate it. The, the kingdom is here because Jesus is here. Jesus is not the kingdom, but he is the king of the kingdom. You see, the kingdom of God, otherwise known as the kingdom of heaven, is not God's realm. It's not God's people. It is his rule. It's his rule. Of course, God has always ruled, but the Bible also pointed us to a new kind of rule that was coming. And in Christ, it has already come in one way, and it hasn't come in yet another. So it's the kingdom is already but not yet. It's both. You see, in Christ, right now, the risen King Jesus reigns in and over his church. So in that sense, the kingdom is already here. But in another sense, it's not because we are still awaiting his second coming to establish first his millennial reign, but then ultimately his eternal reign in the new earth. But let's get back to the point, because John is telling everyone to repent because of this. Well, why would you repent just because the kingdom is here? Well, there's a couple of reasons. And the second one, which I'll get to, has to do with judgment, which I think is our more instinctual response. But there's another one that I think we need to think about. See, John preached that one was coming who is more powerful than he. He said he isn't even worthy to remove his sandals. That's putting yourself pretty stinking low. You see, a slave is who would untie, remove, and carry the sandals. And John is like, the Messiah is coming, and he's so good. He's so worthy that I'm not even fit to be his slave. And that's one of the things that should draw us to repentance. You see, because when you are around perfection, it should work like a magnetic field that draws you to it. Think about it this way. If you're in business, some of you have been in business before, and then you find yourself happen to be around a, a businessman who is just perfect. They, they do business perfectly all the time. And what the, you get around them, and what does that do? It points out all the ways that you screw up your business. And so then you have a choice. Like, am I going to keep doing things my way or repent and do things their way? I'll use another illustration. Let's say that you're a forger. I know there's probably not very many of those out here, but let's say that you like to forge knives and you work really hard at it and you, you get pretty good at it and you start to take pride in your work. But then you come across this forger who gets it absolutely 100% perfect every single time. 
Like, it doesn't matter what steel they use, what pattern they want to create, what methods they use, what tools you give them. They get it perfect every time. They never have a warp, a crack, or peeling. It's always the, the right weight distribution, the sharpness of the hand, of the blade, the comfort in the hand, the right dimensions. It's just perfect. They never have to restart a knife or requench a knife. And when you get around someone like that, what happens? Well, all of that pride that you once took in your work just plummets. And all of the flaws in your work become painfully obvious. And there's no end to the number of illustrations you could use for this. I mean, maybe you don't identify with forging knives, but whatever it is that you like to do, your hobby, your skill set, your job, just imagine that you get around someone who is perfect all the time at what you like to do, what you think you are good at, and then compare yourself to them. Now, that is a terrible Mental and emotional exercise for most worldly things. Your self-esteem will fall through the floor and start to dig a hole in the ground. But it is a wonderful exercise for spiritual things because pride is an enemy to repentance. You see, years ago I did a sermon and I had an illustration with these different t-shirts. And some of you might even remember it, but many of you would not have been here at the time. And so <clears throat> one, so we had we had the white shirt that represented perfection, represents Christ. And then you got the the white shirt with some black spots on it. And then I've got a, a light, kind of a light gray shirt, and then a very dark gray and black kind of shirt. And then one that is straight, just deep black, which would represent the, the worst of the worst of the worst people in the world. And the, our problem is that we often, what we want to do is we want to compare ourselves to the worst of the worst of the worst in the world. And then we start to see ourselves like this. And we, we, we say, yeah, 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 we know we're not perfect, but, you know, we got some spots. But the problem is the object of our comparison. When we actually look to Christ perfection, and we start to compare ourselves to him, then we realize, okay, this person doesn't even exist. This person doesn't even exist. We went, oh yeah, I'm a little gray. No, you're not. That doesn't exist. We, we end up more like this. Or really, I mean, we're really all like this, if we want to get brutally honest, but we, we, sometimes we just can't stomach the fact that, oh no, we're not the rapists and the, and the murderers of the world. But when you really start to compare yourself to Christ, you realize, hey, I don't just have some spots. I am covered in darkness. And that should lead us to repentance. But we have to get this right. Because some people refuse to repent because they think they are too good and they don't see the point. The need, I'm sorry. They don't see the need. And other people refuse to repent because they think they're too bad and they don't see the point. But the point of looking to Christ, of comparing ourselves to His perfection, of setting our eyes on that purity, 
is not to take us to a place where we feel like we're hopeless. It's to draw that pride out of us so that we come to a place where we realize like there is hope, but it's only found in the one who can wash us white as snow. As we see, I lost it again, Brendan. Just click. All right. As we see in Revelation 7, 13 and 14. Then one of the elders responded, saying to me, those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. See, we're supposed to come to a place where we recognize that Jesus is the one who can take this and turn it into this. So repent, because the king is here. And he is good. And second, we should repent because judgment is near. We saw... I'll bring that back up as well. We saw in verses 10 and 12, the axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. That shows us very clearly that judgment is near. That's the other response that we have when the king arrives. He is perfect, which highlights our sins, but he is also the one with the axe at the root and the shovel in his hand, which creates urgency for repentance. There's only one direction that we can run that results in salvation, but our motivation can be twofold. The only way that gets you saved is to run to Jesus. That's the only direction you can go. But our motivation can be both because we want him and also because we don't want the judgment, the punishment that we deserve. We don't want hell. Now, you could probably be saved even if you didn't understand hell. You know, you, you were solely drawn by your love for Christ and, and you, you're running to him and you don't even recognize what you're running away from. But here's a, I, I do struggle to imagine a scenario in which someone can really understand who Jesus is and what he did without also understanding their sin and the punishment they deserve for their sins. But I definitely am skeptical about the idea of someone being saved whose motivation is solely to escape hell. See, if you're just running away from hell and not to Jesus, my fear from what Scripture shows me is that you're going to end up at a closed door. Like the people in Luke 13, 22 through 28. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. 
But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. It's also reminded me of many of the virgins in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You see, we could talk about theories about, well, you can ask yourself, well, when, when does the door shut? Well, here's what I know for sure. It shuts when you die. That's what we need to agree on. And so with that reality, we know that judgment is always near because we never know when that door can shut. The problem is escaping hell is appealing to most people in the world, but repenting and following Christ is only appealing to a few. That's why so many will seek to go through that door and it will be shut. And they'll say, oh, but we knew you. And he'll say, I didn't know you. See, understanding the judgment of our sins is a reason to repent. It's not the only reason, but it is a reason. It does create an urgency to repent. But if the only reason that you're doing whatever you're doing is to escape judgment, then I fear that there's a good chance that your faith is fake. You see, if you don't want hell and you don't want Jesus... You need to understand, only one of those doors will shut. Hell will accept you, even if you don't want in. But Jesus is not going to open that door if you didn't love him. And we need to understand that. We need to repent, both because the king is here and he's good and he's perfect and we love him but also because judgment is near. And what does repentance produce in us? What do we, we've, we talked about what we repent from and why we repent, but what do we repent for? First, we repent to be baptized with the Spirit and fire. We already talked about water baptism, but what is this stuff about Jesus coming to baptize with spirit and fire. Now, some people think that fire in this passage represents judgment. And I don't think that's the case. You know, and the language points to these being unified. That it's not like two separate baptisms, one of spirit and one of fire, but it's a spirit fire baptism. And yeah, fire is often associated with judgment in scripture, but it's also associated with purification. And when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about, His work, when we receive the Holy Spirit, He works in us not only for our justification, but also for our sanctification. And that's what this is about. It's our salvation in view. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is not some separate event for special Christians. It's what happens on the inside of us when we truly repent and put our faith in Jesus. 
And the water baptism that John was doing and that we still do today is an outward representation of something that's supposed to happen on the inside. But one was coming and has now come who is able to do that work on the inside. An inner baptism. And this should also not be confused with being filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, the New Testament uses both language of baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And, of course, we know, if you know the story at Pentecost, that was a big, I don't know if you call it a baptism or a filling of the Holy Spirit. I kind of look at it more as a baptism of the Holy Spirit. But that was a special event that happened when the, the Holy Spirit was beginning his new work in the, in the life of the church. And there was that transition period. But later, after that had happened, later Acts chapter 4 says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And later in the same chapter, it says that many were filled with the Spirit so that they could speak the Word of God with boldness. In Acts 9, Ananias told Paul that he would regain his sight and be filled with the Spirit. And then later in Acts 13... Paul was filled with the Spirit when he confronted a false prophet. So what we see in Scripture is that being filled with the Spirit is something that happens to a believer when they need extra courage and boldness to proclaim the Word of God. You know, there's no extra event that you need in your life as a Christian to receive the Holy Spirit. Every true believer now, no, no one is without the Holy Spirit any longer. Every true believer is sealed with the Spirit. But there are times when... The Bible uses the language that we can be filled with the Spirit when we need, you might call it an extra dose of strength and courage to do what God's called us to do. Kind of like what Jesus said would happen for the disciples in Luke 11, 12, 11 and 12. When you are brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. I think that's an example of him pointing to a time when they would be filled with the Spirit. So this baptism of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, we don't need to get weird with it, okay? We don't need to turn it into something strange. He's talking about salvation, receiving the Spirit, both for justification and sanctification. And that is what Jesus brought that John could not provide. It's one of the results of repentance. That's why... The baptism of the Holy Spirit produces fruit. We, when we are granted the Holy Spirit, He works in us in so many ways. And what we, 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 the one way we can understand it is that we're never empty, but sometimes we can get extra full. If that helps, it needs. But second, we repent to produce the fruit God desires. See, John said to the Pharisees and Sadducees in verse 8, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. And then in verse 10, therefore every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. See, that whole section where he talks about fruit and the fact that God can raise up children from, for Abraham from those rocks connects well with Matthew 21, 43, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. See, we repent to produce the fruit that God desires. That's why John says that the fruit is consistent with repentance. Repentance produces fruit. 
If you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If you go and drink a bunch of water, what is that going to produce? It's going to produce urine. You're going to have to pee. If you go and eat a bunch of food, that's going to produce manure. You're going to have to poop. That's just how it is. So to say that you are a Christian and you've been, that means you've received the Holy Spirit. And to say that you're a Christian who doesn't produce the fruit of the Spirit is to say that the Holy Spirit is failing, that he is unproductive. And I, for one, I don't know about you, but I don't want to accuse the Holy Spirit of being a failure. So if you profess to be a follower of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit is not being produced in your life, what do you think is more likely? Do you think it's more likely that the Holy Spirit is a failure or that you're a faker? I know what I think is more likely. And the solution, thankfully, is still simple. Repent. It doesn't have to stay that way. You just repent. That takes humility. Repentance is not a popular message. It's not. Repentance is not the message that built Joel Osteen or T.D. Jakes or Benny Hinn or Joyce Meyer or John Hagee or Jesse Duplantis or Paula White or Creflo Dollar or Kenneth Copeland or Brian Houston or Bill Johnson. That is not the message that built those empires. Those are people who need to repent. Repentance is the message that built John the Baptist, a greasy-haired outcast living in the wilderness eating bugs. And what did Jesus say about that guy? He said he's greater than any man ever born. And what did the man that Jesus said is greater than any man ever born say about Jesus? He's not even worthy to untie his sandals. So repent, because the king is here, and he is good. He is awfully good, infinitely good. Repent because judgment is near. Run away from hell by running to Jesus. You see, you're not going to get there if you're just running away from hell. A lot of people, they're running like this. They got their head turned. And all they're focused on is what's back there. They just want to get away from that. And the problem is, if if that's what your focus is on, then you're going to end up running face first into a closed door. And I don't want that for anybody. But if you will turn, that's what repentance is. We didn't even talk about it. What is repentance? It's not just confessing your sins. It's not just feeling sorry for your sins. It's to turn, to change directions. That's why repentance produces fruit. So if you will turn your head, set your eyes on Christ, and run to Him, Then you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You'll produce the fruit of the Spirit. And one day you will walk through an open door and into the arms of your Savior. And that's that's where I'm going to be. Because the Bible tells me that I can know that I have eternal life. I'm going to be there. I'm walking through that open door, and I hope that you'll be there with me.